Well, thanks, Christine, for reading Scripture today. And uh, I just, before we start into the sermon, I just want to say a special thank you to Samuel and his family. Uh, we finally found a way to replicate Samuel, because we have him leading worship and doing the live stream today. So that's phenomenal. And uh, thanks to everyone who is working behind the scenes uh, to keep the ministry mission of Bonavista Baptist Church moving forward. And it's actually an incredible number of people. Uh, Kira today is on the live chat, so if you want to say hi to Kira and you're at home, you can do that even right now through the YouTube live chat. Um, and thanks to all those who have been able to continue with the regular habit of giving. Um, if you want to find out about that, you can go to the website and there's instructions there as well. So, it's a challenging time that we're in, but it's also an exciting time. And I think there's new opportunities that have come our way. Uh, there's going to be new opportunities in the fall. So, continue to watch for that, continue to see what God is going to do in us and through us in this place at this time. We've been called together for such a time as this. And uh, so, it can be a very exciting journey as we head toward the fall. Well, today we're finishing up the uh, I Am series, the sermon series over the summer. We've been looking at the seven I Am statements of Jesus found in John's Gospel. These statements, as I've used the phrase, are loaded with divinity. And hopefully we've been getting that as we go through this series, that when Jesus says, I Am, it's earth-shattering and earth-shaking, especially to the original listeners. And it should be to us as well. Uh, the whole purpose of John's gospel is, of course, that we might know that Jesus is the Messiah, and by believing, we might have life in his name. Who here wants to have life? <laughs> we want to have life, and we do this by knowing and believing that Jesus is the Messiah. That's John's burden. That's what he's all about. That's why we did this series as well together. So today we're looking at this statement of Jesus, radical statement, I am the true vine. Now, my family will back me up on this. I am not a gardener. You know this. And, and I must apologize to people who have given me plants. Um, I'm not a gardener. I'm more of a, a hospice care worker for plants, if you catch my meaning. Um, I love plants. I love gardens. I love eating stuff from gardens, especially. Um, I should know about gardens. My, my mom and dad had some big gardens when I was growing up. I even lived on a farm. I always lived next to orchards growing up. I should know how to grow stuff. But for whatever reason, it just doesn't work out for me. Um, but even I, a non-gardener, can get the image that's in this story today, right? It's super straightforward. It goes something like this. A branch cannot produce fruit unless it's connected to the main vine. We get that, right? That, that's the simple message. Sermon over, almost. Don't go home yet. But that's the, the heart of the passage, and it comes from this beautiful image. Uh, we were given a number of tomato plants, and uh, we nursed them, and we grew them, and, and they've grown up, and they're, they're beautiful still. Uh, but in July, we had those thunderstorms, and the hail kind of ripped through them. And there's a couple of those little branches coming off uh, that were severed. So even though they had nice flowers on them and I left them sitting there, they will never produce fruit. And we understand this because they're no longer connected into that primary stock. That's the image that Jesus gives to us and that's the image that we want to explore. But even though we might understand the image on one level, I think the original hearers of this story would have been shocked 
and offended by what Jesus is saying. And here's why. The vine and the vineyard, uh, they were major identity images for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. That was a major piece of their identity. And we find this all throughout the Old Testament. It comes up in the Psalms. It, it comes up especially in the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Hosea chapter 10 and verse 1 says this. Israel is a vine full of branches. So who's the vine? Israel. Israel is a vine full of branches. And so it's, it was so identity forming that even the Maccabees, if you're not sure who the Maccabees are, you can Google it after the service. But the sort of height of, of Jewish power in some ways, the Maccabees on their coins put a vine. That was the symbol. So we're not only dealing with a familiar image that we can understand. We're not only dealing with a farming image. We're dealing with a national symbol, a major identity piece of how the people would understand who they were and why they were in the world. But here's the twist. I want to challenge you to go home today and look up every reference in the Old Testament that refers to Israel as the vine. And I would say 90%, maybe even 100% of them, it's referred to the vine in a negative sense. Every single one of those references, at least the ones that I looked up, I want to challenge you to find a good one, but the ones that I looked up show a negative light in other words, the prophet talks about Israel being the vine or the vineyard, but also talks about them being unfaithful, unruly, unproductive, in need of a whole lot of pruning. And along with talking about the vine, the prophets usually talk about judgment coming to the vineyard. So that's kind of an interesting twist. So in the middle of that imagery, in the middle of that power, that national symbol, but also the judgment of the prophets, Jesus comes along and he says what? I am the true vine. It's not actually the nation. It's me. Can you imagine that? Either Jesus is out of his mind, he's a megalomaniac, or he's telling the truth. That's the option that Jesus gives to us, right? And so he says... I am the faithful, healthy, productive vine of God. It's a radical statement. Uh, Jesus is basically saying this. The fact that you're born into the nation, that's not going to save you. The only thing that can save you is to have an intimate, living connection with me. For I am the vine of God, and you must be branches joined to me. That is radical beyond words, isn't it? I think for us today, um, William Barclay kind of sums it up like this. Jesus was laying it down that no external qualification can set a person right with God. Only the friendship of Jesus Christ can do that. That's incredible. Do you attend church when you're able? That's great. It's wonderful. It's a great habit to have. Uh, do you come from a family of believers? That's a wonderful heritage. It's tremendous. Do you do a lot of good works in the world? Keep on doing that. But none of that will save us. None of it. Only a connection to Jesus will save us. That's amazing. And it's radical. And it's also incredibly freeing to think that we don't have to depend on our heritage or our good works or any external factor that we can rest 
completely in the power of the true vine for eternal life. So as we approach this, I want to ask two questions about the passage. First of all, I want to ask, what is the kind of fruit that we're meant to produce? Because the passage talks a lot about fruit. Well, what are we talking about here? What's the expectation? What are we meant to be growing in our lives? And then the second question I have is, how actually do we remain in Christ? How do we stay connected to the vine? So the idea of fruit, fruit's common throughout the New Testament. And you'll find this in a lot of passages. I think our go-to passage when we start talking about fruit is Galatians, right? Now, I know some of you here know this, so help me out. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, what? Kindness, patience, goodness, self-control, faithfulness. Isn't that a great set of qualities? (laughs) Don't we want that in our lives? Don't we want to be people like that? Don't we want to be surrounded by people who are loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind with us? The Bible says this is the fruit of the Spirit, right? But Matthew also says that there's another kind of fruit. It's called the fruit of repentance. And repentance is absolutely essential if we're going to see the fruit of the Spirit, that we actually turn from our sin and turn to God. And then in John 4, we read about another kind of fruit, Jesus says that the the harvest is is ready, that there's a kind of fruit as we bring other people to come to know and believe and follow Jesus. As disciples, we make other disciples. In that way, our lives bear fruit. So there's all kind of fruit going on in the New Testament. Our lives are meant to be incredibly fruitful. But what about this passage? In this passage, in John 15, the fruit is love. It's all about love. Um, If you have Bibles open or you're doing it at home, uh, look over that passage and just see how many times love is mentioned. It's all about love, and it's summed up in verse 17. Love one another. What the world needs now is... I won't sing it all. Love, sweet love, right? You You know the song? I was thinking that song as I was kind of writing the sermon, and it just struck me right now. That's exactly right. As we look at the world today, the world needs love. This was John's great theme. John said, you know, they will know we are Christians how? By our carefully reasoned arguments? No. By our aggressive and angry protests? No. By the fact that we all wear suits to church on Sunday? No. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's why love, compassion, is the greatest apologetic of the church. I mean, carefully reasoned arguments and all those other things have their place. But if we don't have love, it's meaningless. It's nothing. Uh, But the kind of love we're looking for isn't the mushy, feel-good love. We're not being called to feel like we just want to hug the world. I mean, some people naturally are like that. Don't do it right now during the coronavirus. You're not allowed. But it's not that kind of mushy, sentimental kind of love. When we talk about love in this passage, we're talking about that self-sacrificing kind of love. This is what Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, than what? To lay down one's life for one's friends. That's the kind of love 
that Jesus is looking for. That's the kind of love that the world needs now, that self-sacrificing kind of love. I had the opportunity to do a wedding a couple weeks ago, a very small wedding, and the reading at the wedding was, anybody want to guess? 1 Corinthians 13, right? And we read it at lots of weddings, and it's very appropriate to read the love chapter at weddings. Uh, But it's important for us to remember that it wasn't just written for weddings. Actually, that love passage was written for life. And in that passage, we find an amazing description of love. Listen to some of the words, because we have to get an idea of this fruit of love if we're going to expect to produce it in our lives. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. Are you tired of the arrogance and the pride that sometimes we see in our world today? This is why we need this kind of love. It's not arrogant or proud. Listen further. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. That's the kind of love we're looking for. Christine and I have been married long enough that she could have a whole scroll of a record of wrongs. She doesn't, I don't think. Um, But we sometimes do that with one another. Uh, We listen to the opposing side just so that we can record all their wrong statements. That way, in the next argument, we can throw it back in their face. That isn't love. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Listen further. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. How often do we rejoice when our opponent, when those on the opposite view, fall flat on their face? We're just ready to give them a kick while they're down, because we can. That's not love. Uh, Love does not rejoice in evil. It doesn't rejoice when our opponent falls on their face, but it rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Do you want to get back to that point in your life? I know I do where we trust one another again. I think there's been this erosion of trust among one another. I I think there's been this destruction of innocence within our world today with what we're seeing going on. To get back to that point where we give someone else the benefit of the doubt, that's love. Love always hopes, always perseveres. So Paul says that these three things remain. What are they? Faith, Hope and love, and which one is the greatest? Love. So when John says, and Jesus says, you want to produce the fruit that remains, what is the fruit that remains? Love remains. Love lasts. Love is the fruit. Loving one another is the fruit that Jesus is expecting from our lives. Well, how? Like, how do we do that? I don't know about you, but I don't find it easy. Um, How do we love the people In our family, how do we love the people in our church? Sometimes we're not as lovable with one another as we should be. How do we love our neighbors? How do we love our enemies? I mean, come on, Jesus, that's just gone too far, right? How do we learn to love in this self-sacrificing kind of way? Well, Jesus says, the answer is, remain in me. Stay connected to Jesus. That's how we produce the fruit of love. Not by trying harder, not by attempting some five-step program to get there. Jesus says, remain in me. 
and you'll produce the fruit that I'm asking you to pr produce. Now, I find this idea a little bit tough to grasp, and this is confession time for me this morning. This whole idea of remaining in Jesus is throughout the New Testament. Uh, there's different words that are used for it. Sometimes the, uh, the writers talk about union or being united with Christ or being one with Christ, or Paul loves to say, we are in Christ. And, and there's kind of a, a mystical quality, a mystical element to this, where there is real experiential union with Jesus. But sometimes that's a little bit elusive for me. Uh, I find it hard to fully grasp or understand. And so I want to also make it practical today. How do we remain in Christ? Well, Jesus said this, and he said it a number of times. I and my Father are one. Jesus talked about being united with his Father, of being one with the Father. And so I think as we observe the connection that Jesus had with his Father and what Jesus did, we can learn what it means for us to be connected with Jesus. Those same habits that Jesus modeled for us to be united with his Father are the same habits that we need to develop to be united with Jesus. And I think that's really, really important. Um, Jesus says in this passage, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. That's the key. Observe the relationship of Jesus with his Father, and then we will learn what it means to be related to him. See, the secret of the life of Jesus was his contact with the Father. Again and again, what does he do? He withdraws to a solitary place to be alone with the Father. That's such an important part. And so we must keep contact with Jesus. And we can't do it unless we deliberately take steps to do so. It's not going to happen by accident. Someone else isn't going to do this for us. We have to remain in Christ, remain in Him. It's an act of our will. William Barclay says this, for some few of us, abiding in Christ will be a mystical experience, which is beyond words to express. But for most of us, it will mean a constant contact with Him. It will mean arranging life, arranging prayer, arranging silence in such a way that there is never a day when we give ourselves a chance to forget Him. That's what it means to remain connected to Christ. I know during this time of COVID-19, I think it's taught us a lot about relationships. Uh, it's forced us to live closer together with some people and further apart from others, right? And sometimes we'd like to switch those two groups, but we can't. And so we've learned a lot about relationships. And one of the things I think we've learned is that it's very easy to become disconnected, isn't it? I think of some of our seniors especially, and some of the ones that are in the care homes. For a long season, they were cut off from outside contact, from the outside world. But even those of us that were much more mobile, we have to be very, very intentional about developing and maintaining and growing those relationships, don't we? Now more than ever, we need to be intentional, proactive, and consistent in developing our relationships. And I think the same is true when we talk about connecting with Jesus. We need to be intentional. That means being deliberate and purposeful. It's not going to happen by accident or on its own. We actually have to be deliberate about developing a relationship with Jesus. And we need to be proactive. 
Proactive means not waiting for something bad to happen. You know, we don't wait for the crisis and then we call out to Jesus. Let's develop the relationship now. That's what's so important. And we need to be consistent. Consistency is acting in the same way over a long period of time. As Eugene Peterson says, a long obedience in the same direction. It's a journey. We have to be intentional, proactive, and consistent if we're going to be connected to Jesus. So here's the bottom line. If we want our lives to produce the fruit of loving others, then we need to stay connected to Jesus. See, I told you the sermon was actually over at the very beginning, right? Stay connected to the vine. And that's what uh, Jesus is, is encouraging us to do. In fact, the passage goes on to say that God has chosen us for this very purpose. God has, in fact, befriended us for this very purpose. And God promises to empower us for this purpose through our connection with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I want to grow in my love for others. And, and I find it difficult at times. I find it difficult, especially during this season where there seems to be so much negativity, uh, so much conflict, so much rage, so much pressure to choose sides. I think that's one of the most difficult things in our culture, in our country, in our world right now. This constant pressure to choose sides and dig in where we can no longer hear the voice of the other or respect it. And it's difficult for us to practice this self-sacrificing love. I think I have a long way to go. But instead of trying harder to love the other person or try to stir up some emotion or feeling of love, maybe I need to switch my focus. Maybe my focus needs to be to get better connected to Jesus. If I'm connected to the vine and maintain and grow that connection, if it's strong, then I trust that by God's Spirit, He will produce the fruit of love in my life, something that I can't do on my own. That's what the passage is saying. Don't try and do this on your own. Uh, don't try this at home on your own. Uh, but stay connected to Jesus, and that's how the fruit is produced. Remain in, rest in my love, because love produces love. So do you want to see this kind of love in your life? I hope so. Do we want to see it in our world? I believe we do. So the question today is, how is our connection to Jesus. Let's just take a few moments in quietness and then I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son. We thank you that he is the true vine. Forgive us for the times where we have just kind of struggled to do this on our own and yet you've provided everything for us. Help us to rest in your love. Help us to remain in your Son so that this fruit of love might be produced and bless the world. In Jesus' name, amen.